0: Welcome to this edition of the Alabama Historical Association's podcast program. I'm your host, Marty Olaf, and I talk with people who conduct interesting research and do interesting things concerning Alabama history. You can find out more about the Alabama Historical Association, a membership organization devoted to Alabama history, by pointing your browser at our website, www.alabamahistory.net. Our guest is Dr. Catherine Katie Beasley, an independent scholar whose article, I am planning to buy a new Buick Coupe next year, Rural Women and Alabama's Curb Markets 1923 to 1925, published in the Alabama Review in April 2022, won the A. Elizabeth Taylor Prize for 2023 for the best article published on Southern women's history in the previous year from the Southern Association for Women Historians. Congratulations, Katie, and welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here.
0: Why don't you tell me and our listeners about your article?
1: This article was one that I really enjoy doing the research on and writing. It came from my dissertation and doctorate research. My dissertation focused on how rural southern women in Alabama and Florida were engaging with home demonstration and cooperative extension service programming and using that to economically benefit themselves. So more than just using what they were being taught to save money, they were also using what they were being taught to make money, you know, to sell, to create businesses, etc. cetera and one of the ways that they did that especially in Alabama was through the use of curb markets which were something that home administration agents helped conceive of and put and put forth so i was really interested in how all of this started and how successful profitable how much were they used during the decade before the great depression it was fascinating to look at first of all where were the curb markets located how did the locations also dictate what was sold, what were buyers looking for, and then especially what were women buying with the profits they earned from curb markets? Because curb markets became a way to have a fairly consistent, steady money coming in. Some women, like when my title suggests, some bought cars with the profits they earned from the curb market. Some used it to pay rents, to pay school tuition for their children, to buy clothes, to buy, in some cases, vacations. My favorite was the one from Houston County who had her husband's teeth pulled and a new set put in. That one was the most interesting one that I found. And just how the curb markets themselves also, for some women, prompted them to create their own little small businesses or entities like the example of the woman in Mobile who used that to kind of create her own business where she Went around and sold different suppers and things of that likes. Kind of long-winded way to say that it was a very interesting way to look at this engagement between three entities of home demonstration programming and rural women, and finding ways to have a steady income source that helps with a family bank account, a personal bank account, and just what did that entail? There's discussions about women in curb markets in different states at really post 1930. But I wanted to focus in on how were these used before the depression hit? What's the starting point? It didn't happen in a vacuum. So where's the starting point?
0: I think one of the most interesting things that you write in your article, and I'm going to quote here, while their advice, meaning home demonstration agent advice after 1914, was originally intended for personal use, Agents soon noticed women also applied their newfound knowledge to earning money, which became a measure of relief during tenuous times, which is what you just talked about. But the first half of that sentence is what interests me, that when the home demonstration agents emerged out of Smith-Lever and out of state programs, that they wanted to train women to make their personal lives or their home lives or their family lives better, whatever that meant. And it wasn't initially perceived, was it, by the Home Demonstration agents, that these women would go out and make money. Am I reading that correctly?
1: That's pretty much how it was. There were elements of encouraging women to use extra eggs, extra butter, things that if you want to sell it. Because in the first part of the article, I talk about how before Smith-Lever, we had the tomato canning clubs for girls. If you can save and can, do it first for your family and yourself, and then if you have extra... Go forth and see if you can sell this. But what I ended up finding was in a lot of cases, women looking to the different programming options, whether it was food or making hats or making dresses, et cetera, to use that instead as a way to, hmm, I don't necessarily have to use this for myself to make myself a new such and such or learn how to say, can this, I can do this. In order to find a way to sell it, because once you start having these avenues of making money, all of a sudden now it's like, okay, well, what if I decide to jar food to sell instead of saving? In the records and in the reports, you start seeing shifts depending on the area about how are they using and what are they using the programming and what they're learning for.
0: By programming, you're talking about what the home demonstration agents were teaching. Them. Yeah. But tell us some of the story about the curb markets from 1923 to 1929 that you found.
1: The curb markets were very interesting places. They're kind of like farmer's markets, but they're also like if you combine a farmer's market with a street fair, street market, and from what I have read and the pictures that I have seen, you have this image. You have food, this or that. They sold animals. There was a woman who sold in Montgomery. She was called the meat lady. She sold these various aspects of meat, and I'm still trying to track down her name, but she was just known as the meat lady. There's so many interesting stories and just tales from the different car markets that I just love. Tuscaloosa had such an interesting one where because of its proximity to the University of Alabama, it had people who taught at the university who would sell at the curb market. I mentioned this in the article, but again, it's my favorite. The home demonstration agent for Tuscaloosa called one professor at the university who taught there, like this poor broken, tired teacher who suddenly found the ability to find joy again by selling to the car market. It was just so great. And then they sold snakes, they sold puppies, they sold rabbits, they sold dresses, they sold cakes, they sold barbecue as one point and ham sandwiches. Unfortunately, I did not find pictures of that. I would have very much enjoyed finding pictures of just sandwiches stacked on a table. In some of these instances, the curb markets got really big to the point where they had to find winter locations or they had to find indoor locations. Not every county had a curb market, especially like, for example, around Montgomery. Some of the counties just went to Montgomery to sell. Same with Lee County, same with Tuscaloosa people actually traveled from north georgia to sell in alabama so even though georgia did have curb markets as well so it was an interesting thing to read about just how they're all the same but they're all intrinsically different onto themselves
0: you talked about so that they opened at least one of the curb markets with a brass band and
1: that was mobile
0: tell us about that
1: Having the curb market in Mobile was a really big to-do, especially when they were first opening it. They had the market master from Tuscaloosa who went down to Mobile to help open it. And so when they did, they had a brass band. They had the local government officials come in to open the market. They had... It was a local school topic, and I can't remember right now off the top of my head if it was for the one-year anniversary when they first opened, but I know when they did it for the school topic for the Mobile School Children, they wrote a topic about the curb market essays. And whoever won got to go to the curb market in the movie theater downtown, and Mobile really did make it an event. You want to come to this event, come to the curb market, hear the band, and see everybody. So it did become the thing to do on certain weekends or certain mornings. You know, come to the curb market. Come see your neighbors. Come see what you can buy. Come witness the entertainment. Selma, at one point, had children dress up as vegetables in little homemade costumes and do a play near the curb market called The Vegetables Entertain. I'm so sorry that was not documented anywhere that I could find because that would have been really fun. It was like an event, depending on where you were, To come and be involved and be part of the curb market.
0: Did the newspapers advertise the opening of the curb market? Is that how the information got around?
1: It did. I found advertisements for it and stories about it in the newspapers. And I also think that a lot of it, too, was just word of mouth, telling your neighbor, I did not necessarily find evidence of this, but in terms of extrapolating my own assumptions, there were probably advertisements in town or near the area of the curb market, and also then knowing the schedule of when it was going to open. But yet yeah, the newspapers also made a point of advertising what might be available when it was going to open, if it had to move to a different location or if they had a new one. So they did get the word out about the curb market.
0: This is obviously an era of extraordinary racial segregation. How did Kurt markets take care of racial segregation?
1: In some instances, there were at least it was written down in some of the reports and some of the newspaper about wanting African-American sellers to come to the market, wanting African-American buyers to come to the market. But in many instances, they were in segregated sections. There were some instances in Montgomery, because I've seen the photos where Black American women were selling or they were buying and you can see them. And they're actually with the white buyers and sellers. So I think in that case, it just depended on the area. But it was very segregated. Jim Crow was still at play here. So I think it depended on the area. And it also depended on the instance of it all, but for the most part, you're going to have your segregated areas of buyers and sellers.
0: So, racially segregated buyers and sellers, there probably was some crossover when they were racially segregated whites in one area, blacks in another, I suspect that buyers might have crossed over.
1: Right. Because in Montgomery, there were some references to an African-American only curb market. I was still working on trying to figure out where that might have been located, but there's still some references to the African-American-only curb market. For example, in Selma, where they specifically say, here's the segregated areas of your curb market around the courthouse.
0: I wonder how connected to existing mores of racial segregation and the way that racial segregation played out in any particular location that the curb markets were segregated in the same way. I don't know, I'm speculating.
1: That's a very good speculation. I'm also working with what I was finding in the reports. It wasn't like I found one specific thing written that said, here's how we organized it and here's how we decided to do XYZ. A lot of it is just extrapolating from photos and from the newspapers, et cetera, and making my own assumptions in terms of how it was probably set up and here's what I'm seeing.
0: Right, that issue of probability rather than possibility and using, particularly in local history, traces, sometimes very thin traces to extrapolate a conclusion that's always tenuous and tentative. You do the best you can with what you got. And one article, one book does not make an entire literature. Your article has opened up a number of areas that other people can dive into, like the structure of peddling. You had peddlers who did not want these curb markets. They did not, (laughs) no. But then you had Civic Booster Clubs, which were only about 10 years old in the 1920s, that were pushing hard for these curb markets. They were something new they had to develop.
1: When they were talking about peddlers and hucksters, they were not happy the curb market is coming in. And in some cities like Tuscaloosa and others, they would have to make concessions and say, you can do your peddling on this day and we're going to have the curb market on this day. It really was this negotiation, depending on the city and how many peddlers you might have had in one town. The ones I've read specifically were not very happy. But then once it got negotiated out, especially in the beginning, they have accepted what was happening.
0: You have mentioned your sources a couple of times, and you've said the word report
1: three times
0: Mm -hmm. that I've counted in our conversation. What reports are you talking about?
1: The home demonstration agent reports, which were in the Auburn University archives at Ralph Drone. Every year, county agents and home demonstration agents were required to submit annual reports, which is essentially as it sounds, what did you do? This past year, and it wasn't exactly January to January, it could be November to November. It says, here was what my programming was, here's what I was doing, here's how many women or girls showed up to the activities. Some are very heavily detailed with appendices and a lot of detailed writing about what was going on, and some were just very straightforward. Those reports were the ones that really were very helpful in looking at what was happening at this level with rural women. And in a lot of cases, which was really great, where you had testimonies from the women themselves that were included in these reports, talking about what they did and how the home demonstration agents helped them. Anything from, they helped me learn how to make shelving for the kitchen and now I can put my pots and pans on Two, I learned how to make this really involved basket or hat, and I was able to sell it. And this was great because then I could pay for the car. So it ran the gamut. So those annual reports were very interesting and very much an interesting peek into what was going on in the 20s for a lot of rural women in Alabama.
0: And that collection is fairly vast, isn't it? Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, yeah. (laughs) It is very much like I got to be very comfortable and good friends in the archives there at Auburn. I really did. (laughs) It was a great experience, though, to be able to put my hands on it. That's what you're supposed to do as a historian. But it was really great to just read through this. You can envision in your head what was going on and depending on where you were and just looking at it. It was really great.
0: Well, now let me ask you about you. You mentioned that you have a book coming out. So tell us about that.
1: Yes, I'm very excited about that. Uh, I'm hoping it comes out this fall. I'm in the copy editing, hope to get page proof stage. It's coming with the University of Georgia Press. And it's entitled, The Proof is in the Dough: Rural Southern Women, Extension, and Making Money. It's from my dissertation research. So it's going to look again at Alabama, at women, and uh, Florida as well. Because those two states that I found most interesting in looking at this 1914 to 1929 time period with home demonstration agents and rural women. It's been a really great experience. It's been a very interesting experience since it's my very first book ever. So I'm very excited about it and to also get it out into the world whenever that is. I kind of laughed. I'm going to be very obnoxious about it. I'm going to be like, did you see I wrote a book? (laughs) And do it that way. So, you know, because it is such an exciting, rewarding experience to be able to do this.
0: That's great. And good luck getting your book out at the time frame that you're expecting it. And best wishes for good book sales. What
1: have I missed? What else Mm -hmm. do you want to tell us? I don't think you've missed anything. I was just really excited to have the article published and to have it out there and get this information out about the programming and about what these rural women were doing and to be able to highlight what was going on and showing what they were doing. That they were not to really being passive entities and they were actively engaged and wanting to do more with what they were learning and what they were being taught. One of those things I just really wanted to get their voices back out there in as much of a way off as possible.
0: If your book is anything like your article, I think you will have done very well. Thank you for joining us, Katie Beasley, whose article, I'm planning to buy a new Buick Coupe next year, Rural Women and Alabama's Curb Markets 1923 to 1929, published in the Alabama Review of April 2022, won the A. Elizabeth Taylor Prize of 2023 from the Southern Association of Women Historians. Thanks for being here.
1: Thank you. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you for joining us today. This has been another edition of the Alabama Historical Association podcast program. Our music is the traditional tune Whistle By performed at City Stages in 1996 by James Bryan and Carl Jones. It's provided courtesy of the Alabama Folklife Association which you can find on the web at alabamafolklife.org.